No matter what some people might say, it's very rarely as easy as, quote-unquote, just leaving an abusive relationship. The fear of repercussions, not having anywhere else to go, and the emotional and mental torture that victims go through are just some of the reasons why people stay in these relationships a lot longer than they should ever have to. The only people who know exactly how hard it is are those who have been through it themselves, and they are often the best people to support those unfortunate enough to find themselves in that exact same situation. Sadly, the people who are trying their best to help people get out of dangerous situations can sometimes unknowingly find themselves in one. That is the main theory in today's case as we uncover the Keddie Cabin murders. Hello and welcome to the 61st episode of Uncover True Crime Podcast. My name is Stephanie and each week we uncover a different unsolved true crime case ranging from missing persons, unsolved murders, Jane and John Doe's and suspicious deaths. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other podcast streaming apps. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at uncover underscore pod, on Instagram at uncover true crime pod and you can join the uncover true crime discussion group on Facebook. Just one really quick thing before we get into today's episode. From this week on I am going to try to go back to a weekly upload schedule. If you have listened to this podcast for a wee while you might know that I originally did upload an episode every Friday but due to personal circumstances I had to scale it back to one episode every other week. Thankfully my personal situation has improved a lot. I have since moved house, got into a better routine and I'm currently off work at the moment because of an injury to my foot which is a whole other story but it does mean that I've got more time on my hands to research and produce these episodes. It obviously will be a bit of an adjustment me going back to weekly uploads so there might be the odd week where I don't put an episode but for the most part I am going to try my hardest to get an episode out to you guys every Friday. I want to thank you all in advance for your patience. I would also like to apologise if there's any background noise in today's episode. I live directly opposite a school so I have deliberately waited until after home time before I record this. However, there are a lot of cars passing back and forth. I only moved into this house less than a month ago and I've not figured out where the best place to record episodes is. This is obviously a teething issue that I hope to resolve over the next few weeks. But in the meantime, I do apologise and once again, thank you very much for your patience. But without any further ado, Let's uncover the Keddie Cabin murders. Glenna Susan Davis was born on the 29th of March 1945 in Springfield, Massachusetts, but at some point in her life she moved to Connecticut. While her given name was Glenna, she was more commonly known as Sue, so that is how I'll refer to her going forward. In 1965, she married a Navy soldier called James Sharp, and together they had five children. John, Sheila, Tina, Ricky and Greg. Sue and James were said to have a very turbulent and possibly abusive marriage, and in an attempt to protect herself and her children, she moved to the other side of the country with her kids and the family of six settled in the resort town of Keddy in Plumas County, California. The Keddy cabins used to be a popular tourist resort for people looking to explore Mount Huff, a high mountain peak in Plumas County. At some point, the amount of lodgers renting the cabins started to decrease and the owners decided to lower the rent and the Keddy cabins became popular with low-income families, like the Sharps. The Sharps settled into cabin 28 and Sue thought this would be a fresh start for her and her kids. She had family nearby and Sue had struck up a friendship with one of her neighbours, Marilyn. Everything seemed to be working out until one fateful night when the unspeakable would happen in cabin 28. 
On the 11th of April 1981, several members of the Sharp household had plans for the evening. The oldest Sharp child, 15-year-old John, met up with his friend, 17-year-old Dana Wingate, and they travelled to the nearby town of Quincy to meet some friends. Their plan was to return to Cabin 28 later that night and hang out in the basement. 12-year-old Tina had just returned from a sleepover at a nearby cabin, and Ricky and Greg's friend Justin was staying the night in Cabin 28, so Sue was staying in to tend to the four children. Sheila Sharp had stayed out at a friend's house that night and when she returned the next morning at 7.45am, she discovered a horrific scene inside the cabin. There was blood all over the place and the dead bodies of her mother, John and Dana were lying on the floor. Much to Sheila's surprise, Ricky, Greg and Justin were sleeping in one of the bedrooms unharmed. Sheila woke them up and managed to help them climb through the bedroom window so they wouldn't have to see the horrific scene. Sheila then alerted a neighbour and the police arrived at the cabin a short time later. All three victims were bound with medical tape and electrical cords, the latter of which had been cut from various appliances within the cabin. Sue was naked from the waist down and her underwear, bundled with some tape and cords, had been stuffed in her mouth. Sue and John had been beaten with a claw hammer and Dana had been attacked with a different type of hammer. Doug Thomas, a Plumas County Sheriff officer at the time of the murders, said quote, whoever did this, and there was more than one person, had to have had blood all over them, unquote. The police found two bloody knives within the cabin, one of which was bent, presumably from the force used when stabbing the victims. There were stab marks in the walls of the cabin, a bloody footprint was found outside, and since there was no medical tape in the cabin prior to the attacks, it is assumed that the killers had brought this with them. There was no identifiable or unaccountable fingerprints found at the scene, so it's also thought that the killers wore gloves. Police also believe that a rifle was present as there was a mark on Sue's temple that matched the butt of a rifle, but a rifle was not found at the scene. There are crime scene photos available online, however they are very graphic, so I do advise extreme caution if you want to view them. Despite Sheila, Justin, Greg and Ricky all telling the police that Tina Sharp was missing from the cabin, for some reason the police did not start searching for her until 24 hours later. However, the search for Sue, John and Dana's killers commenced immediately. The motive was first thought to be rape, given Sue's state of undress and the fact that Tina was missing. However, if there was any evidence of sexual assault, that detail has never been released by the police. Detectives questioned all local residents to see what they may have seen or heard that night and to rule them out as suspects. One couple who lived in the cabin next door said that they heard muffled screams around 1.30am and that they had got up to investigate but couldn't figure out where the noise was coming from so they returned to their cabin. This raised an odd question for police. If two next-door neighbours heard screams coming from the cabin, how did Greg, Ricky and Justin sleep through it? Justin first told the police that he had indeed slept through the murders and didn't hear or see anything, but soon changed his story. He described a dream that he had had that night. In the dream, he said that a loud noise had woken him up, and when he peered out the bedroom door, he saw two men in the cabin and Sue was lying on the sofa. At this point, Dana and John entered the room and started arguing with the two men. Dana then tried to leave the cabin through the kitchen door, but one of the men hit him with a hammer. The other man attacked John and Sue tried to intervene, resulting in her getting stabbed in the chest. The two men started to tie up John and Dana. Then Tina came into the room, confused about what was going on. The two men grabbed her and took her out the back door as she was screaming for help. Now, Justin did later admit that this wasn't a dream and that he had indeed witnessed the murders, which must have been very traumatising for him. I couldn't find Justin's exact age online, however, Ricky and Greg were 10 and 5 respectively, and since he was there having a sleepover with them, he would have been somewhere in that age range. There is no information 
information available online as to what Ricky or Greg may have seen or heard, but Justin didn't mention them waking up when he did. Justin said he didn't know who the two men were, but he did help the police create a sketch of what the men looked like. The police then interviewed Justin's mother and stepfather, Marilyn and Martin Smart. They also interviewed Severin John Bodine, however, as he is more commonly known as Bo, that's how I will refer to him going forward. Bo said that he had stayed at the Smart's cabin that night and had been for a few weeks beforehand. Martin said that he, Bo and Marilyn had gone to the backdoor bar for some drinks and they had stopped at cabin 28 that night to invite Sue along with them but she had declined. They said that they only stayed at the bar for a little while and then came back to their cabin which was number 26. Martin then claimed that after Marilyn fell asleep, he and Bo returned to the bar and that when they returned home in the early hours of the morning, Marilyn was awake. All three were ruled out as suspects very quickly, even though there were several inconsistencies in their stories. First of all, Bo told the police that he was a retired police officer, which was a lie. He also said that he was Marilyn's uncle. This was another lie. He had in fact met Martin a few weeks earlier at a veteran hospital as they both suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder due to their time in the military. Bo told the police that he had never met Sue Sharp and didn't know where her cabin was. However, according to Martin and Marilyn's statements, he had been there earlier on that night when they went to cabin 28 to invite Sue to come out drinking with them. Also, when Marilyn was interviewed, she told the police that she was asleep when Martin and Bo returned, not awake as Martin had claimed, so she couldn't confirm when the two men returned to the cabin. Martin also made a couple of curious statements during his interview. He said that Justin had seen something that night, quote, without me detecting him, unquote. However, this didn't seem to arouse any suspicion at the time. He also told the police that he had lost a hammer around the time of the murders and police knew that a hammer was indeed used in the attacks. Despite all these inconsistencies and the fact that they were the last people to see Sue, Dana, John and Tina alive, they were only interviewed once. However, I will return to this part of the case when we get into the theories. Tina Sharp remained missing for exactly three years until her remains were found on the third anniversary of the murders some 30 miles away from the cabins. She was not identified immediately until an anonymous call was placed to the police, with the caller telling the dispatcher, quote, Hello, I was watching the news and they were talking about the skill that was found at Feather Falls and they asked for any help and I was just wondering if they thought of the murder up in Keddie up in Plymouth County a couple years ago where a 12 year old girl was never found. Unquote. There is speculation online that the person who placed this call must have been involved in the murders. However, I don't think this is necessarily the case. Tina's body had been found before this phone call was placed, so it's not like the caller led the police to Tina's body, and they only suggested that the body might belong to Tina. They didn't state it outright. Now, obviously, we cannot rule out that the caller was involved, but I don't think it can be conclusively stated either based solely off this transcript. In 2016, 30 35 years after the murders, the police found a hammer matching the description of the hammer that Martin had lost around the time of the murders in a pond near cabin 26. This hammer was also consistent in the injuries suffered by Tina, Sue, Dana and John in the murders. Two years later, DNA that had been found on the medical tape near Sue's body was matched to a quote, known living suspect, unquote, but the police didn't reveal the suspect's identity. Now, I would have thought that this alone would have been enough for an arrest, but apparently it wasn't as this has never happened in this case. Now, before we get into the theories, I would like to take a quick break to thank a company who has supported the podcast and we'll be right back. 
Support for the Uncovered True Crime podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. Ladies, listen up. Manscaped have just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Manscaped is trusted by over 4 million men worldwide, so why not trust it with your man too? With this exclusive offer, you can give him the right tools for the job for 20% off and free shipping when you use the code UNCOVER at manscaped.com. We all know what a hassle shaving can be. Between blunt razor blades, nicks and cuts, and all those hard-to-reach areas, shaving can sometimes feel like a chore, but not with the Lawnmower 4.0. This fourth-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grip accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. It also has a 4K LED spotlight which you can turn on and off when needed for a more precise shave. The Lawnmower 4.0 also allows you to customise your trim all over with their additional guard lengths with sizes 1 to 4. It has wireless charging and it is totally waterproof so it is absolutely safe to use in the bath or the shower. Ladies, let's be honest, if you're still allowing the men in your life to shave their face and body with the same trimmer, you're doing it wrong. Make it right by giving him a new body trimmer with Manscaped to make your time together the best time with a smooth shave. Manscaped currently have an amazing Black Friday and Cyber Monday deal, meaning that all of their products are currently 25% off. If you use my code UNCOVER at checkout, you can get an additional 20% off and free shipping, which, let's face it, is an amazing deal, especially with it coming up to the holiday season. I gave my lawnmower 4.0 to my boyfriend and he absolutely loves it, and it would make for an absolutely amazing gift for any of the men in your life. So for an additional 20% off and free shipping, go to manscaped.com and use the code UNCOVER at checkout. Unlock his confidence with the new Lawnmower 4.0 from Manscaped. I would like to thank Manscaped for supporting this podcast. But now let's get back to the episode. I'm now going to discuss theories in this case, which, like all theories we discuss on this podcast, are all pure speculation. The most popular theory in this case is that Bo Bodine and Martin Sharp killed Sue, John, Dana and Tina. Besides the inconsistencies in Martin, Marilyn and Bo's statements, and the odd comments that Martin made during his interview, he also had motive. Marilyn and Martin split up just days after the murder, reportedly due to Martin's violent behaviour. As I mentioned earlier, Sue and Marilyn were friends, and Marilyn would often confide in Sue about Martin's violence. As Sue had recently escaped from a violent marriage herself, she had encouraged Marilyn to leave Martin. It is suspected that Martin found out that Marilyn was confiding in Sue and that this made him angry, so he and Bo went over to the cabin to confront Sue. A fight ensued and the pair killed her. John and Dana arrived during the attack, so they were forced to murder them as well. Tina came into the room after hearing all of the commotion and started screaming when she saw what was going on. The pair likely dragged Tina out the cabin scared that she would rouse too much attention. This lines up with Justin's account of what he saw and it also explains why he, Ricky and Greg were not hurt. The three boys were sleeping in the same room that night and it is likely that Martin would have known that. Not wanting to kill his own stepson, he decided not to enter that room and spared the boys. Although Justin claimed to not have known the attackers, it is understandable that he would have been too scared to implicate Martin or Bo in the murders. After Martin's death in the year 2000, 
and his therapist came forward telling the police that he had actually confessed to her that he was responsible for the murders. He specifically stated that he killed Sue. However, he never mentioned Tina, John or Dana's murders or Bo's possible involvement. Also, when the police reinvestigated the case decades later, they found a letter written by Martin to Marilyn which read in part, quote, I've paid the price for your love and now I've bought it with four people's lives. You tell me that we're through? Great. What else do you want? Unquote. Marilyn was interviewed after the letter was found and she said that she couldn't remember receiving the letter but did recognise the handwriting as being Martin's. Now, if I received a letter from someone confessing to four murders, that certainly is something that I would remember. She also can't say that she didn't receive the letter as the police wouldn't have found it in her home if she hadn't. It is possible that Marilyn is lying about not receiving the letter because she too was involved in either the murders themselves or the cover-up. I want to point out that this is all pure speculation as Marilyn has never been publicly named as a suspect. However, the police have said that they believe up to six people were involved in either the murder or the cover-up and none of them have been publicly named. So it is possible that Marion is one of those people. The police did explicitly state that the DNA found on the medical tape was from a known living suspect, which means that the DNA can't belong to Bo or Martin as they died in 1988 and 2000 respectively. This doesn't mean that they weren't there or that they weren't involved in the murders, just that someone else was also at the scene. I'm not sure if the police ever considered Sue's ex-husband James as a suspect, however as he died in 2010 the DNA can't be his either. He lived on the other side of the country so I I imagine he probably would have a very good alibi and while it's not completely unheard of, I'm not sure why he would have killed two of his children if his motive was anger towards Sue for leaving him. It is possible that this was a random act of violence but to me this seems unlikely. Personally, I agree with the generally accepted theory in this case which is that Bo and Martin were responsible and other people helped cover it up. While Bo and Martin can never face charges in this case, the people who covered it up can if they are still alive today. Maybe that way the Sharps and the Wingates can finally receive some justice and maybe even closure. Only one other family has lived in Cabin 28 after the murders and it has since been demolished. After the killings, Sheila, Greg and Ricky went to live with their aunt but she struggled to support them as well as her own children so the three kids entered the care system and would unfortunately end up being split up. Sheila Sharp has gone on to have her own children, is now a grandmother and has even written a book called How to Survive Your Visit to Air which is a semi-autobiographical help book detailing how she has coped with the events in her life. Her family are still in her thoughts as she told the media, quote, even still today I sit here and think what would my life be like with her here, unquote. My heart really does go out to the Sharps and the Wingates and even though this terrible crime occurred 40 years ago there is still hope that it could be solved. So please, if you have any information on Sue, John, Dana or Tina's murders or the circumstances surrounding it, please call the Plumas County Sheriff's Office on 530-283-6375. That is everything I have for you today. Thank you for listening till the very end. Please stay safe and have a good night.